Here's what I've discovered about the practice of medicine, or at least some aspects of the practice of medicine. It has a lot of similarities to fashion trends. All right, let me explain. And I think you'll agree. See, this is why you never throw away those old bell bottoms or those shirts that are so trendy at the moment, because you know that in a moment of time, they will fall out of fashion only to come back into fashion 10, 12, or 15 years later. Yes, I still have some bell-bottom pants. Thank you very much. And that's exactly the case with some aspects of the practice of medicine. Take, for example, amnio-infusion from meconium. That was a big thing when I was in medical school and residency. And then in 2006, it kind of fell out of favor, only to come back into print in 2023. Yep, we've got new data about amnio-infusion for meconium. So if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, well, we stopped doing that. We don't do amnio-infusion for mech. Right, we don't. But based on some new data, maybe we should. And I'm going to explain why that initial switch went from historical use of amniocentesis for meconium to it being left into the shadows in about 2006, and why some criticized the move even back then, and now it's back in the spotlight once again. So I want to highlight this new data. It really is very fascinating. This just came out, uh, published ahead of print on March the 18th, 2023. And I'm going to get into this info about amnio-infusion for meconium based on a new systematic review and meta-analysis. Medicine really does move fast, and sometimes it moves in a circle. This new and updated meta-analysis is in fact questioning the abandonment of amnio-infusion for meconium. This study was accepted for publication, as we've already stated, on March the 18th, 2023. This is ahead of print, and it's a new systematic review and meta-analysis that can be found in the American Journal of OBGYN. The first author is Jessica Davis. Andrew Konitz, who is a longtime contributor to the OBGYN literature, is also a co-author. In this episode, we will summarize the key findings of their new meta-analysis and systematic review and let you know what their recommendations are regarding amnio-infusion for MEC. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In utero, passage of meconium may indicate just normal GI maturation, or in some cases, it may be a flag of either acute or chronic fetal hypoxia. Children born through a meconium-stained amniotic fluid are at higher risk of development of adverse events like perinatal asphyxia or respiratory distress. In the updated 2015 American Academy of Pediatrics guideline, routine intrapartum suctioning of the airway before the delivery of the shoulders was no longer recommended, even when meconium stained fluid was noted. The ACOG endorsed these guidelines in the March 2017 committee opinion, which was number 689. 
ACOG stated that the guidelines were updated to reflect new evidence in the management of non-vigorous newborns with meconium stain fluid. Routine intubation and tracheal suctioning were no longer required. If the infant was vigorous with good respiratory effort and muscle tone, then the infant could stay with the mother to receive the initial steps of newborn routine care. Gentle cleaning of meconium from the mouth and the nose with a bulb syringe could be done if necessary. If the infant born through meconium-stained amniotic fluid presented with poor muscle tone or inadequate breathing efforts, then the initial steps of resuscitation should be completed under the radiant warmer. Appropriate intervention to support ventilation and oxygenation should then be initiated as indicated for any infant, and that can include breathing help like with positive pressure ventilation. And if the airway is obstructed, then that may include intubation and suctioning. This recommendation to no longer routinely suction non-vigorous infants arose from an emphasis on prevention of harms, like delays in providing bag mass ventilation and potential consequences of unnecessary interventions. This was done instead of the unknown benefit of routine tracheal intubation and suctioning. But that was at delivery what about meconium discovered before birth at time of ruptured membranes? Historically, amnu infusion was recommended in order to dilute particulate meconium before delivery. But this all changed in 2006. In October 2006, the ACOG released Committee Opinion Number 346. This stated that, quote, Based on current literature, routine prophylactic amnu infusion for meconium-stained fluid should be done only in the setting of additional clinical trials, end quote. All of this change was because of a 2005 multi-center RCT that had some surprisingly disappointing results in regards to amnu infusion. I'm going to get into that coming up next, but even back then, I remember the criticisms of this RCT, and those criticisms that existed then have only grown in present day. So I'm going to get into why the college felt that amnu infusion for MEC was no longer valid based on that single multi-center RCT and what that criticism said then and continues to say now. Let's talk about that next. Before I go over the new data, let's just pause for a minute and just remind ourselves about meconium, its statistics, uh, and why it matters. Meconium-stained amniotic fluid occurs in one of seven term pregnancies. Annually, it accounts for 400,000 to 600,000 deliveries in the U.S. All right, podcast family, remember this because here's a clinical pearl. The incidence of meconium goes up as gestational age increases. So it's much more common in late-term and post-term pregnancies. That's why some consider this to be a normal physiological event uh, based on gestational age. It doesn't necessarily mean that something is wrong in and of itself. Meconium-stained fluid is noted in up to 27% of post-term pregnancies. Meconium-stained amniotic fluid is associated with neonatal and maternal adverse issues. And here's another clinical pearl. About 20 to 30% of newborns born after amniotic-stained fluid will demonstrate respiratory or neurological depression at birth. One of the most serious complications of meconium-stained fluid is meconium aspiration syndrome, which occurs in about 5% of affected neonates. 
Evidence suggests that meconium aspiration syndrome occurs not only from mechanical obstruction like a physical cause, but also from lung inflammation, so that's a chemical cause. Traditionally, it's been theorized that meconium aspiration syndrome occurs when meconium is aspirated during the fetal gasping at the first few breaths after birth. But we now know, and it's widely accepted, that meconium aspiration syndrome can also occur in utero, either acutely intrapartum, or it can even predate labor. And remember that meconium alone doesn't mean that something is wrong. We've already stated that, and we repeat that because that's an important fact. Meconium can be a total physiological event, especially as the EGA advances. Plus, it's not just the meconium in and of itself. It also has to do with the consistency of meconium. A 2021 retrospective cohort study and another systematic review found that neonates born in the setting of thick meconium stained fluid had considerably higher rates of meconium aspiration than those born with thin meconium stained fluid. So that's a big clinical pearl. It's not just MEC as a whole bucket, but it seems that the more particulate the meconium, either moderate or thick, increases the risk that the child will be affected with a respiratory issue, and it's much less of a risk for thin meconium. This data was published again in 2021 in the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine. So if somebody ever asks you, hey, is meconium bad for the child? Well, the, there's three answers for that. One is it depends on the clinical situation because if the child is 41 or 42 weeks and everything else is fine, so otherwise low-risk pregnancy, uh, then, then that just may be a physiological thing. It probably is okay. The second thing is, well, is there any other marker of acute compromise? Are there D-cells? Is there evidence of maternal bleeding? So you got to put it into context. And then the third issue of how to answer is meconium bad is what consistency is it? Because it really does matter. Thin seems to be much lower risk. Moderate and thick seem to be higher risk. So this is why people have been critical of that initial multi-center RCT from 2005 that we're going to explain in just a moment. Because they've always known that consistency does matter. So if there's a way to thin the meconium, i.e. with an amnio infusion, then they should actually have less adverse events. I mean, that's the thought behind the whole process of amnio infusion to begin with. Amnio infusion is a low-tech, low-risk intervention that has historically been recommended to prevent MAS once MEC was found, especially when it was moderate or thick. Several individual studies and several systematic reviews have shown that this strategy can be highly effective in reducing neonatal morbidity. This whole change came in 2005 when a multi-center randomized trial was released that showed that amnio infusion actually did not reduce the risk of moderate or severe meconium aspiration syndrome, perinatal death, or other major neonatal or maternal complication. Okay, but if you actually take a look at the data, if you actually took a look at the study groups in that multinational, multi-site trial, about 22% of patients who were randomized to the amnio infusion group actually didn't undergo amnio infusion at all, or it was performed in a way that's not typically done. So that's one out of four. 22% had amnio infusion-ish treatment. Yet, it still got published and ACOG changed guidelines based on this rather large multinational trial. 
In addition, the level of perinatal care in that cohort group was highly variable among the 56 separate centers. Now, this original study in 2005 was published by Fraser et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine. These authors also conducted and published another systematic review, this time in BJOG two years later in 2007. The lead author was Zhu. Remember that, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the episode. That's X-U, or Zhu. So these authors in 2007 kind of felt vindicated because in this systematic review that they did, once again, they found that amnu infusion didn't really do anything. They found no evidence that amnu infusion would reduce the risk of meconium aspiration syndrome, a low 5-minute APGAR score, or cesarean delivery. However, they did say that potentially amnu infusion could be better in centers that didn't have routine perinatal surveillance, like, you know, fetal monitoring, which is kind of weird because almost everybody has fetal monitoring. But this has also come into criticism because of the methodologies used in that data for that systematic review. So you have 2005, the first multinational, multi-site RCT comes out. 2006, ACOG drops down new infusion. 2007, those same authors say, look, once again, we did another systematic review and we don't find any benefit to amnu infusion for MEC. But even in that second publication from 2007, critics were quick to point out the large gaps in the data and methodological flaws in their calculations. Um, hold on, just to go off script for a moment. Uh, I'm definitely not being critical of those authors. I mean, it's a lot of work to do these trials. I'm just reporting what the medical expert opinion kind of rebuttal was and still is based about uh, on those two trials uh, when they first came out and even still to present day. So it's not my kind of personal stance. Please, I just want to be very clear. I'm not kind of picking on them or criticizing them. I'm just saying that if you actually take a look at the data, uh, expert reviews and expert commentaries on both of those publications, the 2005 and 2007, were quick to point out, hey man, some of these numbers are, are actually don't make any sense. So again, it's not my personal opinion. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm not that kind of person. Uh, I'm just letting you know what the rebuttals were for those two major landmark publications that kind of validated dropping of amnu infusion for MEC. But that's where this new publication now comes into play. You see, these authors in this new publication from AJOG searched the literature using strategies created by a medical librarian and other researchers who are part of this study for transcervical amnu infusion in women with intrapartum meconium stained fluid. Now, the search strategies were pretty complete. I mean, they looked in PubMed, Embase, Web of Science, Scopus, Google Scholar, yada, 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 on down the line, even the World Health Organization, and they searched clinicaltrials.gov. Now, the primary reason for doing this was to see if amnu infusion on a larger scale with much larger numbers could actually be vindicated as an effective intervention to reduce MAS, meconium aspiration syndrome. The primary outcome of this quantitative review was meconium aspiration syndrome as defined in each study. The secondary outcomes included meconium below the cords, APGAR scores greater than 7 at 5 minutes, neonatal acidosis, cesarean delivery, and cesarean delivery for fetal distress. They also looked at rates of neonatal intensive care unit admission and postpartum endometritis. 
a total of 24 randomized studies with 5,994 participants met the author's inclusion criteria. This was a comprehensive literature search with the inclusion of twice as many studies as the previous meta-analysis by Zhu. Plus, these authors performed meta-regression and subgroup analysis to search for sources of heterogeneity within the studies. These authors also used a statistical tool called curve analysis, and they did that in order to rule out selective reporting. They also calculated what's called the fragility index, and they did that in order to assess the robustness of the results of their calculations. Now, very quickly, and all to say, it was an extremely tight and rigorous scientific evaluation of the data, which has not yet been done before. Very quickly, let me just explain what a fragility index is. A fragility index, if you can think about it as a concrete pillar that you put a study result up on top of. The lower the fragility index means the less number of people it would take to topple that little concrete pillar. So the higher the fragility index, the more sturdy, the more valid the study results are. Does that make sense? So if you had a fragility index of 100, it would take 100 people, so to speak, to knock over your study results and make it invalid, whereas a lower fragility results means your score, your, your results are just that. They're very fragile. So we'll get into that in just a minute. All to say they did a lot of statistics, even something that checked the robustness of their data called a fragility score. Well, what were the results? Well, I'm going to tell you that next. The overall odds of meconium aspiration syndrome, or MAS, was reduced by 67% in the AMNU infusion group. That was a pooled odds ratio of 0.33, with 95% confidence intervals spanning 0.21 to 0.51. Except for postpartum endometritis, amnio infusion was associated with a significant reduction in all secondary outcomes. Now, the test of strength and validity of these results. Remember I told you that the authors calculated the fragility index. The fragility index of the new meta-analysis and the odds ratios which resulted was 39. This signified the statistical significance and the robustness of their calculation and their data. This is compared to the fragility index that was 5 in the zoo trial that we mentioned back from 2007. You remember that? That was the XU author, that's zoo, back in 2007 when they did that systematic review and meta-analysis. The fragility index was 5, but this new one was 39, meaning that the results were much more sturdy, much more stable, in other words, much more likely to be valid. So the authors concluded that intrapartum amnio infusion in the setting of meconium-stained amniotic fluid prevents adverse neonatal outcomes, including meconium aspiration syndrome. This result did not change even when controlling for intrapartum assessment tools, hospital location, or other covariables. In a powerful closing statement, the authors leave the manuscript with the following stance. Quote, 
Accordingly, contemporary recommendations involving intrapartum amniotic infusion for the indication of meconium-stained amniotic fluid should be re-examined by obstetrical professional societies. Since 2007, approximately 6 million neonates in the United States have been born in the setting of meconium-stained amniotic fluid, with about 5% of these infants developing meconium aspiration syndrome. This data suggests that if prophylactic amniotic infusion had been implemented during their intrapartum course, about 200,000 cases of meconium aspiration syndrome of the estimated 300,000 total national cases since 2007 could have been prevented. They go on to say that given the mortality rate of meconium aspiration being reported to be as high as 12%, widespread recommendations of amniotic infusion since 2007 could have prevented deaths of about 24,000 newborns in the United States. End quote. Podcast family, here's the final clinical pearl, and I've got to give this disclosure. In no way am I saying to completely ignore the college current guideline on amnu infusion and meconium. I'm not saying to do that, okay? I don't want to get in any trouble. I don't want any kind of rebuttal. Uh, I'm a kind of an ACOG follower. I love my work with the college. I'm very thankful for those people. They're extremely brilliant and very, very uh, much a patient advocate. But I'm just saying, if you really take a look at the data, uh, just like the authors did in this review, in this new systematic review and meta-analysis, maybe we should never have stopped doing amnio infusion. Now, here's a clinical conundrum. What happens if your patient has variable D-cells and has MEC? We know that amnio infusion can help prevent C-section and, you know, acidemia if the variables are recurrent and repetitive. But can you give amnio infusion in that setting? I mean, can you try to do it to fix the variables even though she has MEC? And the answer is yes. So D-cells overrides the meconium if amnio infusion is being considered. But in the case of just meconium, even though the college kind of scrapped it in 2006, just be aware, that's our job here at Clinical Pearl, just to present the evidence uh, and let it speak for itself. Just be aware that there is data that may be abandoning that based on a single multinational RCT may have been premature. Anyway, just something to consider. Uh, don't go against your hospital policy guidelines. Please don't get in trouble. It just could be great for discussion. Again, it's a great journal club uh, topic. Uh, and again, this is how medicine changes. It's sometimes we just take uh, extra information. We need new data to go, oh, we, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Uh, and things change. Anyway, I hope you found this episode interesting and helpful. Again, that's coming out in the American Journal of OBGYN. And as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.